I mentioned to Mark just before the service that uh, when I was ordained 50 years ago in Roxbury, it was in a church which has now been torn down to make a parking lot, of course. It was in a church only a block away from Ruggles Street, which is where this church originally was until they fled from Roxbury and moved here. So it's a real uh, pleasure, very special for me that, that you're meeting in this place. The, uh, the gospel we've just heard uh, is often taken in a very personal way. Now here is Peter, who has three times, of course, denied his Lord, uh, and three times he's given a chance to, in a sense, uh, reclaim his discipleship, to reclaim the fact that he, he uh, belongs to Jesus and that he is, in fact, going to be loyal to him. And so it, it's often read as the restoration of Peter, and it's certainly legitimate to read it that way. And it's also often read as a sort of a, a, um, an establishment of the pastoral role, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, uh, and in the sense of Peter being, being one of the apostles, one of the early, early leaders in the church, it's often seen that way, and that's entirely legitimate as well. But there is a third sense. Uh, Mark, I think, mentioned this a few weeks ago when, when he preached about the first of the resurrection appearances. In John, we are always uh, looking into a wider scenario. There's always more going on than simply the interaction between individuals, even if one of the individuals is the Lord Christ himself. Uh, in John, we see uh, the establishment, the rolling out of God's kingdom. And the resurrection appearances are, in effect, the beginning, the first day of that new kingdom, which, um, which we uh, assert, even though we, we may not actually pay much attention to the words, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or when we recite the creed, as we will in a few minutes ago, in a few minutes, and we say, he shall come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. In other words, we are constantly asserting that God, in fact, has a kingdom purpose in this world of ours. Now, there are two ways of understanding this. One, and those of you, I know many of you have studied theology and are no doubt more up to date on it than I am. I'm a dropout of several different theological schools. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, there are those who, who regard the role of Christians as basically to build the kingdom of God here on earth. One of my early articles in a Christian magazine, probably, oh goodness, 40 years ago during the freedom movement here in Boston, where I was an active role, uh, was entitled Building the Kingdom of God in Boston. And uh, later I came to see that, in fact, that was theologically ignorant, that finally only God will bring his kingdom. Uh, it is, in fact, God who will establish his kingdom, and that is our faith. It isn't through our efforts. It's through God's intervention in history, in the world that his kingdom will in fact come in some manner which for us is, is 
not entirely comprehensible, but is simply a matter of holding firm to the promise that Jesus has made that, in fact, that will be what God's intention will, will bring to pass. Uh, and yet, I would say that this is a case in which now with more maturity, I would reject my earlier rejection and say that, as with many things in the Christian life, uh, both of these aspects are, in a sense, right. That the Christian uh, life is, is often a matter not of either or, but of both and. Give you a, uh, a different example. We, we believe as Christians that it's only by God's grace that we have been called. Why those of us here? Why not our friends who are, who are very fine individuals, a good, maybe better than, than we are, and yet they have not been, been called into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ? Why is that? And the only answer we can give is God's inexplicable grace. Why has he reached out to me and not to some of my colleagues at, at the university? I don't know. I just have to say God acts in his mysterious way. And that's what, what in fact, we call predestination, or God's choosing and, and, and just going after us, the hound of heaven, not letting us go, even though so many times we may have tried to escape from his claim upon our lives. And yet at the same time, we're told again and again in scripture that, that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're told that there is work for us to do in terms of making secure the calling uh, which we have heard. And which of those is true? They seem to be contradictory. And this is why the super logical Types like St. Augustine or John Calvin get in, in trouble because they want to make everything logical in the Christian uh, faith. But in fact, until we stand before God's throne, we will not understand how both of those things can be true. Nor will we understand how it, it can both be true that we are called to help to build God's kingdom here on earth, and yet, in fact, God himself is the only one who can establish that kingdom. Uh, so the re resurrection is, a, um, is a, uh, an enactment, you might say, a, a proclamation, a first moment of this new kingdom time. One of the things which we lack, uh, I think, in, uh, uh, among modern Christians is an adequate theology of creation. We have a good theology of redemption. We know about the cross. We know about how Jesus paid with his life for our sins, how because of that, through faith, we can, in fact, be, be part of that new life. We generally have not had an adequate theology of creation. And that has weakened us in terms of our activity and our witness in the world. Um, I'm a great admirer of Abraham Kuyper, the, the Dutch statesman, editor, theologian, um, who, who insisted upon our understanding God's work, uh, God's grace, as being not only what he called particular grace, the grace I've just mentioned that reaches out and grabs hold of us and won't let us go and, and introduces us into fellowship with our Lord Jesus, but also what he calls general grace, that is the 
the grace that simply sustains human life, that sustains society despite all the confusion, all the sinfulness which, which we are all uh, guilty of. Um, that uh, Kuiper writes, and let, let me read his own words, um, we need a recognition that in the whole world, the curse, that is Adam's, the curse of, of Adam's disobedience is restrained by grace. That the life of the world is to be honored in its independence. That is, we, we need to see that there is a dignity about the way in which society works. There's a dignity about the way in which culture works. There's a dignity in the work which, which artists do and which, uh, and which business people do, which attorneys do, and which, uh, which uh, uh, mothers and fathers do, and which all of the different callings which, which we have, all of those have dignity because God, in fact, blesses and works through those, even among those who are not, in fact, believers. And that we must, Kuiper goes on, in every domain, discover the treasures and develop the potencies hidden by God in nature and in human life. In another place, Kuiper says, there's not a square inch of creation about which Jesus Christ does not say, that is mine. Now I'm the faculty advisor for four or five different Christian groups at Boston University. And one of the arguments I keep having with them is, it's very important to, uh, help students to think about how, how a biblical understanding applies to what, in fact, they are studying, whether they're doing economics or fine arts or social work or uh, education or whatever it is. We need to help them to think about how Jesus Christ places a claim upon that aspect of human life. Now, an adequate doctrine of creation recognizes that, in fact, creation is ongoing. Creation is not a one-time thing, getting the universe spinning and whatever, you know, Big Bang, whatever you want to call it, but, in fact, is, is ongoing. In fact, in Genesis, we see beyond the story of Adam and Eve and, and all of that, we see um, uh, the, their descendants creating cities, creating music, uh, in various other ways, doing an ongoing act of cultural creation, which in fact is part of God's intentions for humanity. God intends for us to be culturally creative. God intends for us to be socially engaged. Uh, and an adequate doctrine of creation, therefore, uh, is not, for example, um, uh, in enormous difficulties about the biological idea of evolution any more than we can test the biological idea of, of a circulation of the blood or the biological idea of, uh, um, I don't know what, you, you come up with any of the many ways in which God has programmed into his creation an ongoing process which the biblical authors were in fact not aware of. Uh, we can recognize that, that that is part of how God, in fact, is engaged in an ongoing way 
in the world which he has created, and we need to have no quarrel with that. What we do have a quarrel with, of course, is a uh, materialistic scientism which asserts, for example, that the only purpose of human life is to pass on your genetic material to other generations, or that uh, the only um, uh, th th there's no moral order built into reality apart from what any individual may choose to assign to that reality. That we must disagree with. That we must say is not consistent with our understanding of a creator God who has created us in a framework of purpose and meaning and, and a moral um, a structure and uh, coherence. That, that we must quarrel with. But we have no quarrel with science, of course. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting among university professors, the, the group which are most likely to attend church are those who are professors in the sciences. Uh, those who are least likely to attend church are, the, are those in law, sorry Sam, who was a law professor many years ago, and in, uh, and in social sciences uh, are the least likely. It is the scientists who are most li likely to have an ongoing willingness to, to be engaged with the understanding that God, in fact, is sovereign. So, um, uh, I, I want to skip a little bit onto uh, the, the text which Elizabeth read just so well. But um, uh, let me, as, as a transition, say that what, what this understanding of our present activity in terms of a responsibility for God's kingdom and yet an understanding that finally it is God who will bring and establish the kingdom means is that for each of us, our life in effect is what you could call a comedy rather than a tragedy. What's characteristic of a comedy is that in the first act and the second act, all kinds of terrible things happen. Misunderstandings, estrangements, mistakes, all kinds of things, and then they all come right in the end. And that is what we are promised as those who are following the calling of Jesus Christ in this world. We are not promised that our lives will be free from confusion and chaos, mistakes and failures. What we are assured is that in the end, it is God who holds in his hand the control of, of uh, the outcomes. Uh, and this is what the Ezekiel passage beautifully illustrates. And so let me bring you back to it. The first act, you could say, in this passage in Ezekiel 34 is a judgment upon leaders, now upon the shepherds. Now, we can use that to think about God's concern for political life and government, but we also need to, uh, to apply it to the relationship which each of us has in our responsibilities. Each of us here, I'm sure, has responsibilities in which we could fall under the condemnation which um, 
which the prophet expresses in God's name toward the shepherds of the people who have failed uh, to do their, their task as they should. I certainly fall under that condemnation as a, uh, as a professor at Boston University with, in relation to my stu students, in relation to my colleagues, uh, when I'm in de decision-making roles, also as a parent, uh, also as a voter and citizen, all kinds of ways, each of us is, is called to be accountable to God for our role as shepherds. This, this role which in the, um, in the resurrection appearance, Jesus emphasizes in talking with John. So he says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And so we are called into judgment, uh, you and I as shepherds, but then we are assured as the passage goes on that God himself will put all things right. Beginning at verse 11, uh, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. And so the, the, our failures in the long run uh, will be made right in some way by God. That does not make our failures any less significant, but it does mean that we do not have to see ourselves as ultimately being the people who will decide, for example, whether someone else will come to Christ or not. We are called to witness to others, but, but we know it's only as God works in their hearts that, in fact, their lives will be transformed. And then Ezekiel goes on to what I would call Act Two, which is, is when he talks about our responsibilities as, um, as individuals, um, as, as you might say, private, um, in our private role in contrast with the public role, which, which uh, he's, he's uh, condemning in the first part of the chapter. He says, I will judge between one sheep and another. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? And then he goes on actually to talk about uh, our, our failure to care for the environment. Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled? and drink what you have muddied with your feet. And so God says that he will judge us in relation to, will judge us for our failure in our personal lives to be responsible in the way that he has called us to be. But then um, when our failures in our work and in our personal lives have been fully revealed in the first what I've called the first and the second act, we're assured of a third act in which all will come right. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, Christians have always seen the prophecies of David in the Bible, of, of a new David, as referring to what the hymn writer called uh, great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. Um, so he, he will place over, um, over his sheep a new shepherd, uh, 
his David, that is our Lord Jesus, uh, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts, and so, so forth. So um, in the third act, the plot comes right. The reconciliation occurs. The family is reunited. The lovers uh, forget their misunderstanding. Uh, all the things which have been going tragically wrong in the first and second act of the comedy of life are brought together. Now, we don't know how this will occur, and we do know that it is not likely to occur within our lives on this earth. That's why we as Christians look uh, beyond. We see ourselves as being part of the, of the resurrected body of Christ, which in some way which is incomprehensible to us now will in fact be restored in a new kingdom upon this earth. That's, of course, the great, great mystery which we we have to understand um, in the great drama of God's kingdom. I have a, a, um, as I was thinking about this message yesterday, I was reading um, the November night, uh, 2012 issue of Christianity Today. I don't know whether you're like me, but I often get behind on my magazines. They pile up and pile up. And in the November issue, there's an article uh, by Sarah Hall in which she writes about a discussion in a uh, study group in her church in which, and I quote her, two members in their 20s shared their fear of getting it wrong in the next decade, of wasting the years, making wrong decisions, having to backpedal and start over. And she reminds us, and I quote her again, as one who has put on Christ in baptism, that's in Galatians, my life has a pre predictable trajectory. I will live like Jesus through suffering and sacrifice, rejoicing and rejection, obedience and fellowship, service and sadness, death, and resurrection. And my life will end like his in glory. This is how Jesus experienced our fallen world. This is how I will experience it too. And she goes on to use Jesus' image of the vine and the branches to remind us that the losses and gains, the achievements, and the failures of what I've called Acts 1 and 2 of our story. And remember, I'm saying that our story does not end with our death um, in this mortal body, uh, are not what are finally important. She writes, look at an individual branch. What matters most? Which direction it grows, whether it turns to the left or the right? Of course not. What matters most to its health and well-being is simply whether it is still connected to the vine. Now, I would not have you understand me or to understand her 
as saying that our actions and decisions in this life are inconsequential. In fact, to the contrary, they have far more significance than mere efforts to build a successful career or a reputation as a scholar or uh, to achieve any of the countless other goals that life seems to offer us. Because our actions and decisions as followers of the Lord Jesus are contributing to that third act, to the accomplishment of his kingdom in ways which we have no way to understand. Now we see as through a glass darkly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, but finally it will all be clear to us and we will understand that even our stumbles along the way of discipleship, perhaps especially our stumbles and our failures, our defeats, have advanced the great cause of the Lord Jesus and brought nearer the consummation of history in the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Yes, we will be defeated. Yes, we will lose. Yes, we will die in the struggle. All of us will unless the Lord comes first, as he may. But in all of this, we are more than conquerors because we know how the third act of our story will turn out. Let me conclude with a vision of that consummation, offered in chapter 5 of Revelation. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. With your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.